and welcome to the McCovey Chronicles Happy Hour Podcast. My name is Sammy Higgins, and this week I was joined by our site's own Kenny Kelly. We started off by talking about all things Giants baseball, and then dug deep into the concepts of five-star ratings and apologies. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Kenny. Hi everyone, you know our guest today from the site. Today we've got Kenny Kelly. Kenny, how are you? I'm doing great. Good. Well, thank you for joining us today. I feel like you probably write, um, other than Brian, you probably write the most on the site, and I feel like we're, our, maybe our readers don't know as much about you as we'd like them to, so thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me here. Um, so can you tell the listeners and the readers of the site a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, so before I came to McCovey Chronicles, uh, I worked as a, a substitute teacher and a, a line cook for for quite a while. I did my MFA at uh, Columbia College Chicago, so I write a lot of like short fiction, working on a fantasy novel. Yeah, I never know what to say about myself when <laughs> no, I don't think anybody really does. Yeah. Um, well, okay, so we have our little getting to know you quiz, and that might, you know, help uh, people get to know you a little better. That's the goal, after all. Um, so there's three questions, and the first one is, if you were commissioner for a day, what would you change? Oh, man. Uh, I imagine I would have a, a busy day. There's a lot <laughs> that I would want that I would want to change. Um, I think the, the biggest thing for me is that I would want to expand to 32 teams um for the very selfish reason that I could get a a baseball stadium or a baseball team here in Portland so I can actually go to games now because uh right now my only my only option is to drive up to Seattle to go see the Mariners and who wants to watch American League baseball <laughs> and I would also like to reconstructure the the way the divisions are set up because right now I think with the three divisions with five teams uh and the way that the talent is stratified in Major League Baseball right now is that we've got one team at the top who's almost certainly going to win the division and a bunch of scrubs trying to win the wild card right now. So we don't really get a whole lot of like division races right now. Like we've got the the AL Central and the NL Central mm-hmm. and everything else is pretty much decided already. Mm-hmm. Oh, what about and the then, NL East though? It seems like yeah, I, I haven't checked in the last few days, but I thought that was a little bit closer. Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit closer, but not, not what I mean, you're even looking if, for, though. Yeah, even if it's a, even if the NL East like winds up being like down to the wire, I mean that's that's only three out of the the six divisions where we've actually got like a, a surefire race. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think like splitting it up into uh, two leagues of eight or two divisions of eight in two leagues mm-hmm. uh, would make a little bit more sense. Maybe you'd have like more, more competition up at the top. Mm-hmm. So if you put like, like say you put the, the Cubs and the, the Dodgers in the same division, you know, the, the Dodgers still probably outclass them at some point, but you know, I think you've got more, more talent to try and bring down those top teams. Cause right now the, like the Dodgers and the Astros are just kind of feasting off of uh, lesser teams in their divisions. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I was going to say because I wonder how much of that is due to the, the lack of um, competitiveness is due to the fact that just teams aren't committing to going for it anymore. And, like, you have more teams going for the tank instead. Or, like, middling. So, like, they haven't committed one way or the other until about the trade deadline. Yeah, I mean, I think you're always going to have those those really bad teams like the Marlins and the, the Tigers. I mean, every 
like other teams are going to rotate into that terrible spot. Those are just the teams that are occupying the the terrible team spot right now. Because like somebody's going to f- fall behind, but like making it so that the the teams at the top like actually have to compete against each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that because you look at like um, but oh, God, especially the Dodgers, and you know they get to play most of their games against the teams in our division, which aren't the best. I mean, yeah, a couple of them might be somewhat in the hunt for a wild card spot but not not really and so it's kind of a lot of i don't want to say free games for them because baseball is weird and you never know but it it does seem like a little bit of an advantage on their part yeah or it didn't shake out this way but uh cleveland had like a 87 percent chance or something to win their division and i feel like there's just more and more teams that have like these outrageously high chances to win their division Mm -hmm. uh from the preseason standpoint and i guess the twins are showing that you know that that's not always going to work out that way but cleveland's coming on strong now so even if they the twins got off to a good start i think things are gonna shake out the way we thought they did right but you you, would you do want that you know a little bit you want you want another team in there mixing it up trying to keep them on their toes and keep them you know trying yeah because you know you, you want like competitive baseball at the end of the season yeah and with the way the wild card is set up right now like like let's say the, the wild card race is between like the nationals and the cubs and let's say the giants hang in there well those are three teams in three different divisions that aren't going to face each other in september mm-hmm. uh so right so that's not you don't really like have that opportunity for chaos there and then you yeah. have like teams like the Dodgers and that are just going to waltz in and just no drama at all. Right. Yeah. Yeah, like, I get I, it. There's more. I feel like there's more scoreboard watching in mm-hmm. September rather than like, no, like we got to beat this team because we need to be able to like leapfrog them in the standings. Yeah. Um, I want to see them of... like actually facing each other. Mm hmm. Yeah, and there's just, I guess, no way to really predict that when you're scheduling games. But it would be, in that regard, it would be much better if you had more teams within the divisions competitive because then those games where they're playing each other at the end of the season means a little bit more. Like, we've seen that with the Giants. Yeah, for sure. Because really it's, like, August when you're, like, facing your your wild card components. Right. And that's, like, really where the races are now. Mm-hmm. You um, know, the more... <laughs> Sorry, my dog is whining. That's okay. Um, we were supportive of dogs on this show. <laughs> yeah, so I think, you know, if you move away from the, the five-division format or the five-team uh, division format, you know, you maybe you lose a little bit of, like, interdivision rivalry because, you know, familiarity brings breeds contempt. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it also opens the door for, for new rivalries to, to emerge. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, so our second question is, if you had to give an impromptu TED Talk, what could you talk about at length, like, without any notice? Oh, man. Uh, it doesn't have to a, be baseball related. Yeah, I was going to say, because it's, that one's hard for me, because um, one of my least favorite activities is talking. And a lot of the obvious ones for me would be, be baseball. So, like, you know, like, why should Barry Bonds be in the Hall of Fame? Oh, yeah, that's a good I, one. Yeah, why is batting average not a good stat? But um, <laughs> okay, so let's phrase know, it this way: to... If you had to write a ten thousand word essay, let's put it that way, at the drop of a hat, like just off the top of your head, what could you write about? Uh, so the one that I was I was thinking of um, that I could actually like talk about would be like writing process, because uh, in my my grad program they emphasize 
like writing process a lot. So we would have to like like research an author's writing process, and then we would go to um, like readings, and somebody would invariably ask the question like, "What is your writing process like?" And I I don't really find that to be like a productive use of time for for other writers to like be to like spend a lot of time like worrying about another author's writing process because like that's that's their writing process that's that's not their own writing process that's not what's going to work for them right like as an aspiring writer you can't like look at Stephen King and be like oh well he writes 2000 words a day so i also need to write 2000 words a day right like but, if i just yeah. make this certain kind of tea and set it up by my computer i'm going to write just as good as this other author that drinks that kind of tea right before they start writing like it doesn't yeah. work that way yeah and like and in my program, like we, we spent so much time like talking about like what our process is like, but it's like, this is what my process is like now. I mean, my process, uh, outside of the, the grad program is a lot different than what it was inside of the grad program. And that's just the nature of it. Cause like time has changed. Like I'm changing as a person, I have different obligations and opportunities and like different, uh, you know, creative inspiration. Like I'm, my process is like always going to change. Like, I mean, even in my baseball writing, like, you know, I write an article every day, but I don't always approach it the same way. Like sometimes I make an outline. Sometimes I don't make an outline. Sometimes I start in the middle. Sometimes I start at the beginning. Everything is like always going to be different. So, you know, asking another, another writer about like what their writing process is like, doesn't really benefit you. Because, no, because it, it's, that's theirs. Yeah, everybody's got a different brain, and their brain works differently than everybody else's. So, yeah, you like, find out what works for you. Yeah, like it might be interesting, and like it's it's useful to think about like the ways that you can like trick yourself into doing more work, or uh, how how best you work. Uh, but ultimately, I mean, I think it's more important to just write rather than spend time thinking about how you write. Right. Well, I think I think inherent in a lot of writers is uh, a tendency for procrastination, and so if you can mm-hmm. spend time thinking about how other people write, then that's less time, less time that you're actually writing, and that's kind. Of, I don't want to say that's the goal, but you know, sometimes procrastination is kind of the goal. Yeah, and like I think some of the the motivation in asking like the what's your process like question is like trying to find hacks for writing, like like they have a secret, right? That that you don't know about and like that's why you haven't sold a book or whatever yeah it's like no they don't they don't have a secret they just they just, they just write and... right. they, they get <laughs> the ideas out of their head onto the, the screen or the page or however they're writing and go yeah. from there i mean i feel like that's the biggest biggest part of the battle <laughs> yeah for like... most people because everybody's got an idea for a book it's the getting it down mm-hmm. in my opinion yeah um, so moving to a lighter topic, our last question is favorite ballpark food from any park. Yeah, I think uh, I'm going to have to go with an oldie but a goodie. It's the garlic fries at whatever the Giants are calling their park now, Oracle. Yeah. I keep wanting to call it AT&T. Well, I mean, it's been AT&T since yeah. however long, but like the longest, it's the longest name it's had, so I get it. And that is probably one of our uh, most common answers from people around baseball, not just Giants fans, so... That's a, yeah. a, a good thing to send on over to their uh, whoever does their food management over there. 
Um, so we like to ask everybody what made them fall in love with baseball and specifically their favorite team. So what's your story? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think like a lot of people, I inherited my, uh, my love of baseball from a family member. I always think it's like weird or impossible to like come to sports later in life, like as an adult, as like sports are kind of silly and dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't seem like a productive use of time. Yeah, in my case, uh, I inherited my love of baseball from from my father. Uh, I didn't inherit any, everything from my father. I didn't inherit his love of of AM radio or or fishing, uh, but baseball did stick with me. Um, so a lot of my first memories are of playing baseball in the backyard with my brothers and sister, and listening to my family argue about who was better, Will Clark or Barry Bonds, which is kind of a ridiculous question in in retrospect. Aren't all sports uh, questions kind of ridiculous? That's kind of the point. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a fool's errand what we're doing. <laughs> um, yeah, and then I've had some some holes in my in my baseball fandom. Um, my parents got divorced like sometime uh, uh, before the nineteen ninety four season. So then, like, I went to go live with my mom, and then you know there wasn't baseball, and like she, you know, is a Giants fan, but we didn't really get back to, to baseball like when the when play recommenced in uh, 1995. Um, so so it took a couple years and then uh, the 1997 season is when it like really like picked back up for me. Like I remember like, like I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, but like uh, like seeing Roberto Hernandez, a, uh, a reliever, get a hit was like something that was like really like fascinating and and interesting to me as a as a small boy and remember uh like uh there was a game where like glenn allen hill had a, a walk-off hit um and like that was really exciting and the whole like 97 season like culminating with like brian johnson's walk-off homer uh that really like i really excited and, uh this is a pet me. podcast today ladies and gentlemen that that crackling you were hearing was bella attacking a plastic bag and we've got a puppy it's good times over here yeah uh she's she's whining because uh she's got like a, a ball underneath the couch but there's a ball adjacent to the couch mm-hmm. right next but to she it she wants the one that's under the couch yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh okay so um how did you i guess you i guess you came into writing before you came into writing about baseball or did you start writing about baseball first before you went to school for writing uh so i'm I'm a pretty, I'm a, I'm a newbie for, for baseball writing. Uh, I really came into it, I guess it was after the 2016 season. Mm-hmm. At that point, like I had been reading McCovey Chronicles for like five or so years. And uh, Grant was really like the first baseball writer that I really enjoyed reading. Like, mm-hmm. like a lot of baseball writing can feel kind of the same. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if you're like reading the, the game recap in the, the paper or um, even like stuff at Fangraphs and and other places, it, it can it does have a tendency to like feel kind of the same. But Grant had this like really unique voice and really unique perspective on baseball, and it was really funny and engaging. And you know, you learn something when you read his stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, so Grant was really the person who like made me have an interest in baseball writing in general. And then we have that in um, yeah yeah I, I think uh, I'd say. <laughs> A lot of people could say the same thing. Did your cat knock something over? <laughs> I don't know what just happened. Something fell. Oh, no. 
Okay, we're good. It was the water bottle. It was my my gym water bottle. The cat is on a tear. <laughs> Anyways, back to it. Yeah. So, um, so Grant was influential. I think Grant was influential to a lot of people, especially like, um, I, I don't know how old you are, but um, I think like millennial and down. Grant's mm-hmm. been pretty influential for a lot of the writers that I've talked to. Um, so for me, it was an honor that he hired me before he, before he jumped ship. Um, yeah. <laughs> but he had like a had he's not dead. Um, he has a style of writing where it's you know like you were saying a lot of other um, baseball writing is very similar because it's very professional and that, that was mm-hmm. the thing that drew me in about um, Grant's writing is that it wasn't unprofessional but it was silly in a way that you don't often see in sports writing and I think that was what was not unilaterally silly but you know what I mean like he you'd be reading an article and all of a sudden it would just be you know hilarious side note or whatever and um that was one thing that that I always really enjoyed because it was a different style like you said yeah exactly um yeah I didn't actually like try my hand at writing a, a baseball article until what it must have been like the 2016 2017 17 off season uh, I wrote a a fan post at Beyond the Box Score about uh, like Joe Panic's declining line drive rate or something, and then that was around the time where I started really listening to the Effectively Wild podcast, which at the time was at uh, Baseball Prospectus. It has now since moved to Fangraphs, but I joined the, the their Facebook group and I saw that somebody had posted a a job posting for for BP Wrigleyville, which was the the Cubs local site for Baseball Prospectus. Uh, so I thought like, you know, what the, what the hell I'll apply. If I don't get it, it's fine. If I do get it, great. Uh, so I got hired. Um, <laughs> I didn't get paid. Uh, sorry. My, my dog is <laughs> very entertaining. Keep yeah. going. Sorry. Yeah. So that was like my first, uh, like steady, like writing gig. And then I, I wrote, um, some giant season previews for, uh, banished to the pen, which is like effectively wild's sister site. And yeah, I kept uh, going with with that, and kind of learned the the craft of of baseball writing and how it differs from from fiction writing. Like, because when I first approached baseball writing, I was like, oh, this is gonna be be easy, right? Because I'm just <laughs> writing about baseball. But it's the it's got its own unique challenges because like you have to navigate like like how well versed is your audience with the analytics that you're using or you need to be able to convey something that's dry and boring in a in a interesting way like i feel like i kind of like fall into a trap of just like rattling off statistics without like actually writing any prose yeah so i worked at uh bp wrigley bill for a while and and then i saw the posting at mccovey chronicles and uh i wasn't going to apply because i was I don't know, not in like a, a great like headspace at the moment, but then uh, uh, my brother Joe convinced me to apply, and he was the reason that I I eventually did. Well, we're all very grateful to him that that he talked you into it. Um, yeah, we were really happy to have you on the site. You've been doing great work. Oh, thank you. It's been great. And it's funny because I think this is only the second time Kenny. Well, I mean, we we talk online, but like this is only the second time Kenny and I have actually talked to each other, like heard each other's voices. So that's yeah. like the, the somewhat downside to um, having co-work or colleagues that you uh, don't actually work with in person is you're like, 
you, you maybe see them once period <laughs> yeah. or talk to them like very infrequently so that's i'm glad you came on today because it is nice to it's nice to get to hear your voice and have like the audience get to hear your voice you know yeah yeah i get to prove that i'm a real person yeah exactly you're not a bot and, uh, yeah i'm not brian's alt account <laughs> <laughs> i i think it's pretty it's pretty clear to tell the difference there um <laughs> So let's start chatting about the Giants. Actually, we'll start chatting about the Giants after this quick break. Okay, so it is time to talk about the Giants. So I have, well, we're recording this Monday night, so there's no game tonight. Um, and I have in the morning tomorrow, so Tuesday morning, um, there's going to be a poll because, Kenny, I don't want to alarm you, but like the Giants have like five players four maybe five players who could possibly get to 20 home runs in this season and that is uh that's wild that is 2019 baseball i know <laughs> um so i have the kind of the poll is to decide who we think is going to get there first so obviously leading the team is kevin pilar at 17 you've got mikey stremsky at 16 uh evan longoria evan longoria at 15 and then brandon belt and pablo sandoval tied at 14 and that's where i kind of cut cut it off because mm -hmm. i think it's crawford after that was nine and that's not happening um so who do you think if anyone who do you think is going to get to 21st Ooh, um i mean Plar is the closest but i think i don't know i like the way stremsy is swinging the bat i mean they're both hot right now I mean, they had, they had five homers between the two of them on, what was that, Friday night? Um, uh, was it Friday night? Yes, it was Friday night. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. my short-term memory is really bad. <laughs> yeah, mine too. Um, so, But my money was on Yastrzemski too, because like he's done 16 and about half as many games as Polar. So eh, that's where my money's going. But, um, you know, I'm not going to rule out Brandon Belt going on one of his, like, tears that he does sometimes when he gets hot and he's hitting, like, five home runs in a week. You know, yeah. he gets five home runs in a week, he's at 19. So, I don't know. I just mm -hmm. think like, it's nice to see. Um, you remember last year there was a graphic of um, all players, I think it was all, uh, all the teams and how many players they had that were, like, over 10 home runs in the season. And... <laughs> You look at the very end of the list, and it's just like Brandon Belt for the Giants. I don't know. Like every other team. Hmm? I didn't see that graphic, but it was it was sad because you had yeah. all of your teams that like that you have like a, uh, a bunch of teams that had like twenty plus home runs, and it's it's these like lines, different colored lines to represent each team, and then at the very I, I can't remember if it was the very end or the second to the end, but it was like just a little tiny picture of Brandon Belt. Um, so oh. it is nice to see that, you know, the Giants are starting to join in a little bit on the home run fun while while it lasts. Yeah, because, uh, like, I mean, for a while, like, the home run surge, it just passed by Oracle Park. But I haven't looked to see if, like, home run per batted ball or anything has gone up uh, this year. But it seems like maybe it's getting a little bit more home run friendly. I don't know. I'd actually like to see a breakdown of how many of those um, came on the road or versus came at home. Hey, I have an assignment for you. No, just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I need ideas. <laughs> well, go for it if you want to. Um, but that would be interesting because I wonder how many, because I don't know, it's hard to keep track of stuff like that, how many they're hitting at home versus on the road. Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously the park is notorious for robbing Brandon Belt specifically of home runs. Mm -hmm. 
so I'm sure that affects things. And, you know, obviously Pablo is on the uh, injured list right now, so I don't know don't know if he's going to have a chance, but I like the, the odds for the rest of them. Um, so what – this is a loaded, uh, big topic. What were your expectations going into this season, and how have they uh, panned out? I mean, I think I – like a, a lot of people expected the Giants to finish in last place in the NL West, and that they're in second right now is pretty shocking. I expected – I mean, the big question coming in was like what – was Farhan Zaidi going to do with the roster, I think. I think that was, like, the only thing that we, like, couldn't really predict, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I expected this to be kind of a kind of a gap year, like, like time to reset. I didn't really expect him to, like, to really add anybody of, like, real, like, major significance. Um, but he's been very proactive with people on the waiver, waiver wire and making some some pretty trades um so the the additions that he's he's made have been pretty shocking in their efficacy and like how how little he's given up for for anything because he hasn't signed anybody to a big contract he hasn't given away any top prospects so he's how dare you insult ray black like that oh yeah ray black that's right (laughs) (laughs) um Um, yeah i don't know I, i don't really know what i expected from him um I have to say there are days that I get a little weary from the amount of uh, of movements to and from the big club, but uh, but it, what he's doing is effective, you know, and especially mm-hmm. like what, how he managed the trade deadline. What are your uh, how would you grade the trade deadline this year? I would I would give that an an easy A. I think that if there was going to be an offer uh, good enough for either Bumgarner or Will Smith, I think he would have made them. Um, you know, when I, I woke up that morning of the trade deadline, I was I was like pretty much at ease because I knew that like the only way that Bumgarner was going to go is if there was going to be something like worthwhile coming back in return. Like he, Zaidi wasn't going to just trade away, you know, the face of a franchise when the Giants are at least on paper in a playoff hunt, let alone their uh, their closer. Now, like unless think- it was going to like vastly improve their their odds of making the playoffs in the future. Yeah. Do you think that they would have been as um, selective if they hadn't had the massive run that they had in July? Like, do you think if, if they were still just playing badly, do you think they would have still tried to hold out for a better offer for Bumgarner? Or do you think they would have just accepted whatever the best of the offers was? I think if they were in last place, I, I think that that changes things because, um, you know, the their playoff odds of this year, like, might be slim, but at least they're there. Yeah, and, you know, they are like, existent. You know, the kinds of prospects that you get for, for rental players and midseason trades, you know, sometimes they, they're a hit, like Corey Kluber was an example, but, like, you know, most of the time they don't really pan out. So just by, you know, keeping Bumgarner and, and Smith with them, like, they probably increase their their chances of reaching the playoffs in the next three years, like more so than if they had traded them for prospects. Yeah. Now, if there was zero chance of them making the pro the, the playoffs, then like I would say, yeah, probably trade them for the best thing that you can get. So I did think that the the July the July run did change things a little bit. So what has been what has what have been some of your favorite uh, moments from covering the team this year? Are there like favorite 
games that happened or that you covered? Like, what have been some highlights for you? Oh, man, the uh, the Alex Dickerson game in Arizona was, I think, my favorite game of the season. Um, Just the, the dick, dick, dick chant. Yeah. Just It just made me laugh for, like, half of the game. Um, <laughs> Brian that, and that I was went like... to the um, McCovey meetup game that we did in mm-hmm. July, and he tried to start a one-man dick chant, and it just didn't work. But it made me <laughs> laugh for, like, a solid 10 minutes. I have uh, I've heard heard it on the, uh, the broadcast a couple times like coming from the uh coming from the crowd so <laughs> it's uh, it's it's slowly catching on among yeah. the, uh, the common folk i can't understand when they cut to like the, the the players chanting when the other you know when somebody's coming into the dugout i know they're not saying dick 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 but they're saying something and it never matches the player's name and so i, I would love to know more about like what that's about yeah, we need to figure out like what everybody's nickname is because I know for like Kevin Pillar it's Skit. Cause, oh, I guess is that he what does. Yeah, because I guess he does skits or something in the the clubhouse. Gotcha. Um, uh, yeah, that's. Yeah, it's, yeah. I feel like Dickerson, even if like him joining the team didn't cause them to go on a massive run of success, I feel like them being able to chant the word "dick" like raised the energy level and like. Reminded them of being twelve-year-olds and loving how or, and how much they used to love to play baseball. Because <laughs> my God, if the two didn't like happen right around the same time. Yeah, that that's when they became a fun team. Like they were they were playing well before that. Like you know June was perfectly fine, and then you know they got really hot in July. But like they weren't really a fun team until like Alex Dickerson joined it. Right. And, like like and even when they've been bad, like too, because he was roughly yeah. around the same time. But you can't really chant Yastrzemski as easily as you can chant yeah. Dick. It kind of reminded me, like, like when you're, uh, like, with coworkers or something. Like, um, like after the first time, like, all the, your coworkers go out for a drink or something. And it's like, oh, you're, like, also, like, other people. <laughs> so we can, like, actually enjoy each other's company now. And then, yeah. like, I feel like that was that moment when, uh, when Dickerson joined the team. It was like, oh, like, we can actually have fun and, like, enjoy each other's company now. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like it can't have helped over the course of the last three and a half seasons of just having such miserable baseball. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I feel like for the players that have been through those all of those years, I, I feel like that has to take a huge toll on you mentally. Like, you're getting up and you're going to work every day, but it's just like, oh, what's the point, you know? Yeah. So I feel like kind of that infusion of um, younger, younger players uh, has maybe helped them kind of get out of their funk. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I, yeah, I do have to say like the the roster churn is starting to make me a little bit dizzy though. Yeah, I, I'm hoping that like in future years there will be more rules to address this because I think next year they're going back to 15 day ILs and then they're expanding the rosters to 26 man. Um, so that extra roster s- slot is going to cut down on some, some roster churn. Cause right now it's yeah. like, it just makes sense to be rotating guys from, mm-hmm. from AAA. Cause like you can keep them fresh. You can like really think about matchups more like, you know, a team like doesn't hit sliders. You can bring in your, your guy with a really devastating slider. And, and probably part of my, uh, my fresh, not frustration, but weariness of it. It comes from, you know, co- covering the team. And it's like when the beat writers, like so I call it the running of the beat writers, as soon as there's like news and it's like 
80 tweets of like the roster move is like how is anyone expected to keep up with this <laughs> like there are days i couldn't tell you who's on the team because it's just you know what i've got a lot going on yeah yeah that changes day to day yeah and it really does um and i feel like more so than it has before or am i just imagining a better past where we didn't have so much uh movement and definitely his idea has been has been more uh or trigger happy with the the roster moves. Yeah, so I don't think I, Evans or or Sabian ever moved move players like this. And I feel like that's got to be rough on the, the younger players, but I I do get it. I mean, I, I get it from a baseball standpoint, but oftentimes, like, I look at it from the the human perspective. It's like one day you're making getting a game check of you know the the major league minimum, and then you're back in Sacramento and. Right, Especially yeah. you get a lot of these players and it's just like every other week, up, down, up, down. I mean, that's got to be exhausting, but it's baseball. Yeah, it's like the the players on the taxi squad right, really never get a homestand. They're just like always on the road because either they're, they're joining the, the major league team in San Francisco or wherever they're playing or they're going to back to the minors and playing wherever they are. So it's it's got to be exhausting. I can't imagine what it's like. Yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah, and I feel like with this team, especially the younger players or the like the fringe players, it's, it's I feel like it's kind of hard to know where you stand because I feel like some players are getting like longer looks than others, and some are getting just like hardly any look at all, and it's like you barely unpack your suitcase and you're gone again. Right. Yeah, and it makes me wonder, like, cause, you know, it's like it's not enough of a sample size to like for their you know, their statistical performance to, like, really make an impact. So I'm, like, I'm wondering, like, what kind of data they have on the players that, like, makes them, like, so sure that, you know, Connor Joe wasn't going to work out and that he yeah. was just, like, was just having a bad week or, like, yeah. with, same with Michael Reed. Yeah, it is wild that those were our, st- our opening day outfielders. But it, it's kind of nice how the season has progressed, like, I could see this outfield like on opening day next year. And I don't know when the last time we've had that kind of outfield security before where you kind of knew, well, barring, you know, I'm knocking on wood here, um, barring the unforeseen. um, I I feel like for the first time in a while we can like, so yeah, that'll probably be the opening day outfielders next year. Yeah. I mean, no, it'll be interesting to see what they, they do with Kevin Pillar. Like I know he's, He's very popular, but he's, you know, there's a, an argument to be made to to non-tender him. I don't know if I like that argument, but it'll uh, be interesting to see what happens with him. Um, I haven't looked ahead to, like, see what kind of uh, players are available on the free agent market. But, I mean, I think they, they could go into to 2020 with this outfield and, and be fine. I don't think it's going to be a tire fire. <laughs> That's an improvement <laughs> yeah. on some years. Yeah. Um, so we usually have like a little venting session, which can be positive or negative, whichever way you want to take it. So uh, since you are the guest, I will let you go first. Okay. Um, I think I'm going to put starred reviews on blast. Okay. So like in our current culture, like everything is like reviewed on a five star basis, but I think that it's nonsense because people either rate things five stars or they rate things one star and like sometimes it's like like four yeah. like three well, if you're feeling like really mean <laughs> uh but it, like it doesn't really it doesn't really like tell you a whole lot because like the, the average 
like book rating on Goodreads is like 3.4 or something. And there's like very little like standard deviation from that. Um, it's kind of like the same kind of thing with like prospect grades. Like, like every prospect is rated, rated either like 40 or 45. And if they're really good, they're rated 50 or above. You know, you don't get a whole lot of like variance between their grades, but you've got this like 20 to 80 scale. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that like the starred review really takes away our ability to like really critically think about things. Like I would rather review aggregating sites like I'm thinking about like Google or like Yelp or like Metacritic. I wish that like they looked at reviews as either like in the uh, like the Rotten Tomatoes or the Steam um, uh, model where you either like recommend something or you don't recommend something. I feel like I feel like the problem is, is the only people, not the only, the majority of people who are motivated to leave a review, especially like on a five, you know, a five star rating are the people who either had like an excellent experience or a terrible one. And there's very little in between, like the of motivation yeah. to leave a review, I should say. Yeah. And I've definitely noticed that too. Like the people who leave reviews on Yelp are like generally like friends and family of the the restaurant owners or other people who had a bad time or professional yelpers yeah yeah th those weirdos that yeah <laughs> no offense if you are a professional yeah. yelper i mean i'm sure there's a lot of like upside to it but you know going getting going out and trying a lot of new things but um i think sometimes that makes people like more critical than they would be if they just went out and enjoyed a meal and wrote something about it but I, I digress. Continue. Yeah, I think if we if we switch everything to a a recommend or don't rec recommend system, then I think people have to like really think about like <laughs> think about their opinions and like because like people have different definitions for like what five star is because mm -hmm. there are people who are like never happy with anything and then they'll like only give you a five star if like your Uber driver like comes out and like opens your door for you and like gives you a bottle of water and like gives you the aux cord and like, and then there are the people who like just give you five stars because they understand that it's like, you know, part of their job requirement to keep their star rating above a certain point. They don't want right. to like incur on somebody's job performance. Well, and then there's the, the social pressure there and you know, they're grading you too. So it's like, okay, mm -hmm. I'm going to give them a five and hopefully they'll give me a five and everything will be good. Yeah. Right. Which actually, I mean, somewhat related. I think that's an interesting system where the customers and the, um, the I, I don't know the right word here, employee, but like also for Airbnb does the same thing where the, the, the host and the customer or the, the renter both like grade each other and like, oh, that's like, that's like some accountability. So you can't just mm -hmm. like say something nasty because you're going to be held accountable for it. But I mean, I mean, there's downsides to that too. I just that, I had my first experience with both Uber and Airbnb the first time this year, so it's oh, yeah. still on my mind. <laughs> yeah, I do think it's uh, interesting to like have that rating system go both ways. It does remind me of that Black Mirror episode where where everybody has the star rating, and then Bryce Dallas Howard uh, her life gets ruined. I don't know if you've seen it, but no, uh, but I've seen an episode of The Orville that was like the same thing. Once I, I've heard the description of that episode before, and I was like, oh, uh, okay, well, I don't know which one of them did it first, probably. Uh, not the Orville, but anyways, it is, it's, it's, it's a disconcerting premise, but it is, isn't that like life now anyway? I mean, you, you, once you do something that's, um, I don't know, um, 
trying to trying to phrase this according to the site's new guidelines. Um, <laughs> but once you do something that like is inexcusable in people's eyes, you're like canceled and like your social credibility is gone anyway. And like you can't get a job in your thinking of people in the mm-hmm. public sphere. So politics, um, entertainment, anything where you're in the public eye, like once you are quote unquote canceled, you're probably never working in that field again. So we already somewhat have that. Yeah, Not it, is like, but... it is interesting to think about cancel culture and like, like, is it going too far? Is it not going too far enough? Because like, I know they're, I'm thinking of like a video game journalist who, who got canceled a couple of years ago, but like, he's, he's still working, but he's like under like a pseudonym now. So like, people do like navigate out of, out of being canceled. Yeah. But like, yeah, I mean, with, with Twitter, I mean, if you say something dumb, like people are going to give you immediate feedback on it. Yeah. I, I do uh, feel like there is an, I'm trying to think of the right word a disinterest in allowing people to apologize. Obviously there's phony apologies and I can spot those a mile away. Most people can, Mm -hmm. but like when people like do genuinely apologize and try to make things right, um, it seems like it doesn't matter to a lot of people. They're never going to let it go and they're just going to hold it against that person for the rest of time. And it kind of does feel, I do sometimes get the mentality of like, you can't win even if you try, but I think it's always worth trying at least. Yeah. It's, it's really hard to like craft a, an apology that people are actually going to accept. And who knows if like people would accept any sort of apology for, for certain trying to think of the word. Indiscretions. Yeah. Indiscretions. Cause there are some things where it's like people are just, like never going to give you a second chance and right. maybe that's appropriate. Um, and then there are some things like, l- Go ahead. uh, and there's some things where like, you know, maybe somebody just like goofed up for a moment. Mm-hmm. I think people are more inclined to like associate somebody with the scandal over whatever they did than, you know, remember that they actually tried to, to, to make amends They'll They won't remember that. They're always just going to associate the person with what they did wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's human nature because that's the type of things it's you always it's, I feel like it's easier to remember the negatives than the positives. Right. Yeah. And I think with like creating an apology like like actions are so much more effective than than saying things because like anybody can like say that they're sorry. But, you know, if you actually like go out and like try to uh, correct some of the harm that you cause, that's like showing that you're like actually learning. Yeah, and I feel like the basic thing most people get wrong about apologies um, is actually, like, taking accountability and and actually, like, apologizing for what they did. I don't know why that's such, like, a groundbreaking concept to so many people, but Mm -hmm. you see all of these apologies. Well, I didn't mean to offend anybody, or I'm sorry if you were offended. It's like, no, that's not an apology. An apology, a basic apology is taking responsibility for what you did wrong, accepting that you did something wrong. And apologizing for it, not just apologizing for how other people felt about it. Sorry, we are on a tangent, but <laughs> yeah. I, I love it, though, because this is such an under-talked about, not under-talked about issue, because I think people do talk about this, but it's something I don't think, I don't know that people have, like, always put a lot of thought into when it comes to apologi- apologies, whether it's, like, public figures or in your own life. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a video, go on, like, four or five years ago, maybe a little bit longer, by... Um, Francesca Lee about like how to how to apologize and I like this says a lot of the same things I'm saying now because I picked up a lot of that from her and it's stuff Mm -hmm. that I use in my life you know I try not to mess up I think we all try our best not to uh 
have to apologize very often. But I feel like more often than not these days, people would like rather eat their own foot than admit they've done anything wrong or apologize for it. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. that's that's venturing away from the guidelines of the site. So. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we should probably bring rein it in a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so my uh, my my vent for the week rant whatever somewhat well it it was somewhat similar um so i had a pretty stressful week last week um among other things my dog had surgery and it was just a whole thing and so normally like when i go on twitter it's to take a break from whatever i'm working on because i feel like i'm working 99 percent of the time yeah and i feel like lately and it's you know it's been building over the course of the last few years but i feel like it feels like more work to check twitter every day than it is to like do my job or to do my writing or to do my editing for the podcast or whatever I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like it's gotten to this point where like people are so are much more focused on like sharing the worst things that they find on the internet. And I don't mean that necessarily like arguing or bickering or like politics or anything like that, but it's like something, let's say it's like something like the milkshake duck. You're familiar with the term? Yeah. Okay, so people who are kind of obsessed with finding the thing that makes something a milkshake duck. For the audience that like isn't aware, it's like something that's very uh, innocent seeming and very wholesome. And it turns out that like, so there's like a duck drinking a milkshake. And then like 30 minutes later, you find out that the duck is like a Klansman or something like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if I'm describing that right. But and I think obviously, we got it. Yeah, and obviously, I mean, you can't help it if that situation is what it is, but it seems like there's always, like, maybe it's just the people that I follow, but there's always, they're always focus on trying to find the thing the thing that makes the good thing bad. Um, right. And constantly sharing, like, the worst stories they find without ever, like, contributing anything positive. And obviously, mm-hmm. I feel like the bad news lately kind of outweighs the good, but the good is still there, and it's just, like, it feels like, nobody wants to see that anymore you know it's like all they want is to be angry and for you to be angry and why aren't you as angry about this as i am Mm -hmm. it's like we we cannot live on anger alone um so that's where i that's where i'm at right now so we we, we went down like a we we got a oh hey that was bella everybody bella has joined the podcast um kind of went off the rails here but let's bring it back so um our Towards the end of our podcast, we like to have our guests give us their favorite cocktail recipes. So do you have one that you want to share with everybody? I do. Uh, I'm really more of a, a beer guy, um, yeah. occasionally wine, and then every so often I'll have a cocktail. Usually that's like a whiskey ginger or a Moscow mule, but I've got a, a super secret recipe that I've got, which is I ran out of ginger beer, but I still have vodka and the way you make that is you take whatever vodka you have left and you combine it with a LaCroix, maybe a pamplemousse or an apricot, and then, then you drink that. Alcohol LaCroix. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, LaCroix always makes me laugh because I think of all the all the memes. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, I have nothing against anyone who drinks LaCroix. I, I, I'm not a, a – what is it? It's not a seltzer. It's a sparkling water? What is it? Yeah, it's like a – seltzer it is like a seltzer carbonated water yeah it's never been my thing but to each their own well thank you for sharing that seems like it would be a nice summertime drink yeah yeah like a little refreshing yeah i mean it's basically like a vodka soda yeah but... well vodka, <laughs> v- 
vodka soda is probably my favorite. Like when I had to do my um, my cocktail at the first episode, mm. was literally vodka soda and a lime, because I'm boring. Nice. Yeah. yeah. But I'm also a beer person, and a lot of our guests have been. So I do appreciate you sharing with us a cocktail recipe. So we're going to close it out by giving you an opportunity to talk about anything you have going on, um, not just on our site, which everyone, you know, presumably reads Penny's <laughs> work because you found this podcast on the site. Um, but if you have anything that you wanted to highlight or promote, go for it. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So you can find me on Twitter at Kenny Kelly Words. And I also write for Beyond the Box Score, which is uh, SB Nation's uh, sabermetrically inclined uh, blog. So you can find more of my writing there. And then if if you want to read some of my, my short stories, uh, you can you can Google Kenny Kelly absentees. You can find a, a short story in Joyland Fiction, which I think is pretty good. And maybe you, you should read it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that you should read it then. Yeah. All right. Well, um, Kenny, thank you so much for being on with us this week. It was really fun getting to chat with you. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. Big thanks to Kenny for joining me this week. Make sure you read his work on the site, where he's one of the few writers without a podcast, but we'll work on that. But Brian and Roger have one, and you can subscribe to all of them on the McCroncast feed wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're feeling generous, drop a review, but maybe not a rating, depending on how this episode has left you feeling about star ratings. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.